Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Some writers do a lot of research, but R.D. Gennari, I think, has done a lot of planning. Rob, welcome to 3CR. Thank you for having me. Now, when I talk about planning, I mean, well, how many books have you got planned in this fantasy sci-fi series? Up to four. Up to four? Yeah. Maybe a fifth. Who knows? Now, if you've got that many books, (laughs) you have to have a climax for each. Mm. But you have to have the story still Mm. ongoing. So did you work forward or backwards? Very good question. What I've done is I wrote the entire framework. So I know exactly what's going to happen at the end. Uh, It's my job now to fill in. I thought you might have. I thought you you might have. Because I think once you've read the whole book, you'd understand some of these other quirkinesses that go (laughs) on in the book. Now, goodies and baddies, every Mm. sci-fi book has to have them. So, baddies first. Who is it? Well, dualities, yes, a very important thing. Uh, My dark overlord is Astra. Uh, He doesn't take physical form in the book. Uh, but uh, without spoiling it for later chapters and later books, um, he's uh, just this kind of lingering presence that just permeates through the culture. Ooh. Yeah. Now, goodies. Uh, mm. Thankfully, Santia is mm. a Lampros. Mm. And what's the role of Lamproses? Lampros is kind of like a, an interchangeable word with wizard or mage almost. It's a word that I created, a neology that I created. And basically, he's you know, a, an extraterrestrial, if you want to look at it that way. He's from another place. He's not from the the planet that they reside on. And he's been mandated to help the civilization work out the problem and solve it. Well, you talk, talk about creation and you've created the whole of Numaria. Mm. And this is where the first book takes place, the Battle of Skeptron, the first uncovering. But it, when we have, this, have a look at this wonderful map, <laughs> and it is just beautifully written, uh, we find out that the first book only takes part in a quarter mm. of Numaria. So I assume that we spread out into the rest of Numaria in the rest of the series. Um, this map making, does that make you an artist as well? Did you do it? I, I drew the outline and I drew all the names and I created all the elevations and risings. However, I had a good friend of mine uh, that worked for Marvel. He worked with Marvel on Spider-Man and he actually, ah. yeah, yeah, helped well, me. It, it looks very professional. <laughs> yeah. Well, on the map yeah. of Namaria, we have the divisions of countries and uh, cities, mm. and they've all got ancient types of names. Mm. Mayasam, Marantia, Lokia, Denkari. Mm. Now, you've given us old-fashioned antique names. Mm. Is that for a reason? Yeah, I wanted to give uh, my mythology a weight to it. So I devised a language and created a language system with uh, two dialects in it. So uh, when people read and when people go through the book, they feel that. And it brings something that's special. Well, your story starts in Toria. Mm. What is the sport of Toria, please, Rob? Yeah, the national sport is called Lucari, and uh, it's basically a form of Greco-Roman wrestling with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So, um, yeah, 
the descriptions of the the, the wrestling mm. were very, very good. Yeah. So I would say you might have just a little knowledge in this area. Yeah, I do. I'm a, a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu instructor and uh, I train with the Olympic wrestling team as well. So, uh, yeah, of Australia, which is good fun. Okay, there's the sport side of it, mm. but there's also the theory side of it. Mm. So uh, just from uh, Battle for Skeptron by mm. Rob Gennari, can you just read just that little philosophy of sure. Lucari? Yes. Lucari is lethal, but it is what you bring to it that makes the difference. Bring aggression, stamina and power, and it'll become dangerous. Bring concentration, humility and perseverance, and it becomes the ultimate art form. Mm-hmm. So there's more to mm. Lucari and more to the the country of Toria mm. than just wrestling. But the best wrestler is Arius. He asks to accompany Santia, and I remember Santia is one of those Lamprosses, on his next journey. And his uncle and aunt are pleased as they feel that he will find out about himself. Well, this all sounds ancient, except... They leave in a solar-charged transporter <laughs> moved by magnetic levitation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, I know, I know. So, as they travel, what do they learn? <laughs> yeah, they basically watch the planets start to unfold like as far as an evil presence spreading through the planet and they start seeing it in the fauna, the flora. They start seeing it in the, uh, in the people that they encounter and uh, it's just a downhill ride from there. And Arreus starts to see, hey, this is really serious. Really serious. Yeah. Especially when you come across things like Megathero. Yeah, yeah. Can you tell us what a Megathero is? Yeah. It's actually based on our megafauna, um, Megalania, we had in the western areas of Victoria. So it's a species that lived in the uh, pl- uh, Pleistocene, I believe. Um, and this huge, massive goanna that's like 15 metres long. Uh, pretty terrifying. Yeah, and as they say, these animals are not from our time. No, yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> well, the band of protectors grows, and mm. new characters we learn about, and we also learn a little bit about their back history. Mm. And as the serpents grows and grows with all of these megathoria coming out of them and attacking and stuff, Rata Ardi Janari looks as if he's going to give us a red herring because we move to a nice little peaceful city and meet this very nice young lady called Bavara. Mm. How does she fit in? Yeah, wow. She's in the first book, it, it's not such an integral role for her, uh, but without spoiling the book, she is a very, very, very important uh, character in the whole series. Um, and yeah, she's linked in more ways than one with the protagonist of the race. She's a gymnastic teacher. She is. She is. Yeah. And she and Arius, yeah. the young chap, the mm. young um, wrestler, mm-hmm. they both share an ability of dreams. They're mm. both having really, really um, vivid dreams. That's right. And neither of them understand. Mm-hmm. Now, here we do another jump. Now, this time it's to a group of scouts looking for missing people (laughs) and they venture underground Mm. where they find the remnants of a journal and what were the last words written in that journal Uh, i think they might don't go into the tunnel (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's pretty straightforward right (laughs) yeah yeah so you've set up a whole world underneath Mm. with interdimensional technology yeah now what's what was that set up to do 
Well, interdimensional technology is, is probably what we can refer to as a, like a consciousness-based technology that may not have, like you might look at it, it might be a diorite rail or a, a granite slab. But interdimensionally, if you look at it that way, it may have amazing uh, virtues and powers to teleport you to another planet or to, um, you know, to change matter or to put you in a stasis so you can live a thousand, a hundred thousand years and wake up and bang, you're there. Oh. As fresh as you were when you went in. See, I thought it was to keep the Rifkas down. That the too. Rifkas, yeah. That, that too, yeah. So it's a multi, a multifaceted oh, technology. It's a good one to have. It's a good one. Does it exist? Oh, there's a lot of talk <laughs> on the internet about it, but who knows? <laughs> now, of course we get a backstory of the people, but mm. we also get the history of all the separate groups now and before. There's been a whole race of giant beings called transicers yep. who sacrificed themselves, saving Nemeria from the reefers before. Mm, yeah, yeah. And you've also taken us into different galaxies. Mm. There's star beings with the planet Ark, the interstellar ga- gateway. Yeah. Well, what's happened to the planet Ark? Yeah, it's basically a jump box, a portal box. So just say on planet Earth, we had a box that we walk through and bang, we're on the surface of Mars. It's the same thing. And it's used in a bad way at the start of the book because the evil guy has it yeah. and he's not supposed to have it. It's been stolen. So, yeah. Um, a thermonuclear no explosive with the shockwave killing the uh, protectors mm. of the planet Ark. Yeah. And now that baddie's got it. Mm-hmm. But there's also been a king that's been killed. The nose has been hacked off, the eye scratched, and griffs carved into his chest. Mm. Griffs? Er- eroglyphs, Gly- like hieroglyphs. Yeah. Ah. yeah. So, Rob, you had to invent a language as well. Mm. Yeah. And Because, you know, in an explanation, this is a quote from the book, Ithikos is an old suffix only used in Ipsilkeri, the high script of the firstborn. Mm. Oh, dear. <laughs> it was a bit confusing, but, well, I got it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So these griffs are, are appearing mm. everywhere. Yeah. So back to the baddies, and what I've really uh, got to laugh about this, there's a, um, a whole country talk called Denkari, mm. and they don't control by power of laser beam or anything. Mm. They control by propaganda. <laughs> this, is, this is really quite yeah, good. Yeah. Was this uh, based on anything? Uh, look, it's not allegory. I haven't written allegory, but, um, you know, it definitely will, we will start to see with Battle for Skeptron so many things play out now and in the future and also in the past. So that can parallel what's happening on our planet right now. You know what we haven't mentioned? No, what? What the Battle for Skeptron, what's, what is Skeptron? Uh, the Skeptron is an artifact um, that is, uh, has been separated into four pieces. And the, the whole point of the story is to collect these pieces before the bad guy gets them. Because this is a technology that is not that doesn't belong on the planet. So the oh. people don't have the ethics or the morals to handle that. That's my version of the one ring. Well, okay. I'm a Tolkien fan. What can I say? <laughs> well, we do get a little light relief with the eventual meeting of Arius and Belvara mm. and the simple courting over watermelon juice <laughs> with extra ginger, please, and a possible mm. meeting in mm. Starfall. Mm. But back to the action with Arius... Can he come out of those tunnels alive? Mm. You, you write the action pretty darn well. Do, Thank you. Do, did you visualise the action or do you sort of see it? Well, 
if you've trained in, say, for example, any martial art, but in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, when you've got a 125-kilogram guy pressing down on your chest on the ground, you're claustrophobic, you can't breathe, you, you're in hell. So I understand that part of a fight and the horrible side of it. And I was able to impart that, you know, in, or put that into my book and explain that, exactly how I was feeling it. And imagine someone's trying to kill you. That would take it from here to there. So at least yeah. they might have a human form. Where do you get your grotesqueness yeah. from? <laughs> uh, bipedal, uh, you know, hominid style uh, uh, beings, uh, you know, can be in all shapes and forms. So. Because there's so many different things coming up. There's the cave dwellers that are pretty ugly. The mm. rifters, the, 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 oh, the hybrids, the yeah, hybrids. yeah. So I've been speaking with um, Rob Gennari about his first book in a series, Battle for Skeptron, The First Uncovering. Now, this, um, what happened at your first book launch? <laughs> okay, so I thought, great, I'm going to a local bookstore, Dimmix, down the road. I'm a local guy. Let's, let's do this. Expecting maybe 70, 80 people tops because that's who responded to my Facebook message. I get there. And they've blocked off the whole south wing of the shopping centre. <laughs> I'm in trouble by the uh, security. Um, and it was like over 400 people there. So I've sold that in 45 minutes of the book. So It's not bad. It's not bad, but it was terrifying. Because <laughs> this is my first book signing. I was signing on the wrong page. It was, I was, <laughs> it was crazy. 400 there for your first book launch. Well mm, done. So you're you. doing a lot through social media. So you've got your lynch, your, your genre picked yeah. for who's going to be reading this book. Mm, that's right. Yeah, you need to know what who you're going to be pitching to. So, Yeah. Yeah, it's good. It is good for them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, Battle for Skeptron, the first uncovering, a coming-of-age story where the two young protagonists need to take responsibility for mm. their actions. Now, we don't know why. We mm. don't know why they're having their dreams. But yeah. that, that will all come to pass. Oh, yeah. The second book will hit you like a sledgehammer. Yeah. <sighs> Okay. So, um, Rob, if people want to get it, how do they do it? At the moment, uh, physical books can be purchased from Amazon uh, and digital books uh, from the Kindle store and the uh, iBook store as well. So, yeah. Thanks very much. <laughs> so, Rob um, R.D. Gennari, Battleful Skeptron, The First Uncovering. Thanks very much, Rob. Thank you, Jan. Well, Jan, I'm venturing down a rabbit hole of sorts with my book today. It's entitled A Chink in the Daisy Chain, and the author is Phil Day. So, Phil, welcome back to 3CR. Good to be here. Now, to begin with, this is one of uh, Finlay Lloyd Publishing's house's shorts, so to speak. It's not exactly a novella, nor is it part of a, a five-novel series. Uh, it, it's a really... A, a divertissement. Yeah, it's not one of the. We had a. We have a series of FL Smalls, which are, there's ten of them now, and it's not one of those either. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, what had happened? I wrote this about ten years ago, and it was much longer. A Chink and a Daisy Chain was about. Uh, I think it was about fifty thousand words, and then I ended up adding essays to the back of about another thirty thousand words, and that was. And then I just left it. Um, and when I revisit, thinking, oh, maybe I'll do something with. That's when I trimmed it right down. I just I rewrote twice, and really the only couple of things remained. I, I cut most of it away, and I realised if I because I, I started writing more stuff when I was living in Canada for a while and, and um, in New York, so I was writing more there, and I've been writing when I got back, and I they were all sort of following off from this in a way, but not realising it. So I thought, well, this could work as a first chapter, and I thought if I don't get it out now, I'll probably just keep rewriting it forever and it'll never, nothing will ever come of it. So I thought I'll publish this. So there is actually planned for two more books after this one, which will be much more 
um, typical length, you know. But linked to this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the protagonist in it is still, well, it's The me. same. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's, I mean, we've just heard from Rob how he planned out everything. This isn't really a planned out thing. It's sort of a, a generic, well, how would you call it? Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it evolves. Uh... Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure what sort of structure would be accurate to describe I mean, it, I mean, I've always liked the short form, you know, like mm. fairy tales and folk tales, and particularly even like, like the Book of Jonah. You know, it, it's only like it's a page long in any kind of standard, like a decent sized Bible, but it's much more epic. Like it feels, it reads like a novel in the sense of its grandness, but it, but it has a clear structure. But those smaller forms, I quite like. But in that small form, I think it. I, I don't know. I feel that the. I often feel with fiction, the sort of the structure starts to feel evident. Sometimes you can feel like you're sort of going through the sort of. The, I mean, I'm not saying they're tropes, but I, we, we, like the obvious one for me is always withholding something from the reader. You know, yeah. like something's going to happen, and and in this, I think a lot of that's sort of given up early. <laughs> well, what we've got here is a sort of mental meandering which begins at a dinner party. And that's the structure in some ways. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, uh, you are the protagonist yeah. and you wander, so just mentally wander. Yeah, well, what had happened at the, the beginning of it's true, I went to a friend's place and um, who in this is called Mr S or Mr Shulam and his wife, Mrs Shulam or Mrs S. And I'd gone there. They were moving to Grafton, which is mentioning them. And I'd gone there with the, the point to say that if there is a perfect book, Alice is it. It was an ongoing conversation. We lived with each other as students. And um, we'd never, and this conversation would come up and never really get anywhere. And I had an argument that I wanted to present with this. And I, but I don't like arguments, but I always find myself in arguments. But I, but I wanted to try and make this point. Not, not to make him agree, but I wanted a dialectic conversation, just somewhere we... Anyway, it never went anywhere that night. It just didn't, you know, it just sort of went belly it just didn't i said it and he said a few things and it just sort of disappeared you know but you diverge in so many different directions well that's what happens you know when you go somewhere and you know it's like that sort of that polite sort of dinner behavior like oh let's agree to disagree and you go okay or someone goes all right this is getting a bit heated let's not talk about it but in your mind just keeps racing you think oh no i want to tell this person what i really feel but your mind also bounces down other rabbit holes so to speak um which is that natural? I mean, I, I've prepared for this interview. I've got a structured sort of outline of points that we can look at, yep. and we wouldn't necessarily diverge. But what you've got here, the structure of your mini novella, is really more diversion than anything else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I, I mean, when I wrote it, I did have some idea where it was going to begin and where it was going to end. And there were some things in there that I wanted to include. But I felt that when – I mean, my background's mostly drawing. You know, like I was an illustrator for the paper and I've been making books for years and illustrating other things and I paint and draw and things like that. And um, and when and, and a drawing like that, the, the idea of a structure, you don't have semantics and syntax to worry about. Lines can go wherever they want. And uh, people argue have formalism and certain sort of – you know, like it's like cartography if you're doing draftsmanship, you're following the structure in front of you. But by and large, the only – you know, you, you can you can go whichever way you want. You can wander, and you can even leave things incomplete, and people don't mind so much, like a sketch. It, it, but it's more natural. That's what we do in yeah, real life. But I think we do it in our heads. I think that mm. when we think, when we our thoughts aren't so structured. So I think you know, one person could be talking about one thing, and you're just your mind's going elsewhere, and you're only half listening, or you look out at you know, you're catching a train or or on a tram, and you're 
heart, you know, you're looking out the window and you might be thinking about one thing and then that reminds you of something else. And we do that at night. You might start off thinking about, oh, I've got to go to the markets tomorrow to buy a fish. And then you remember something about, oh, what fish do I like? My dad doesn't like that fish. And then you start thinking about the time you went on a fishing trip and before you know it, you're thinking about the moon landing. I don't know, like it just yeah, happens. It, it, like- just, yeah. <laughs> but it, it then makes it very hard to categorise what we've got here. But the other interesting thing then is I think there is a structure here because at this dinner party, you go off and reflect on your own things in the past, but you also project into the future. Now, was that a deliberate structuring? Yeah. Well, that was because, of the, like I was mentioning before, that withholding of something. So I wanted to give it up early. I wanted to give up certain ideas that were going to happen. So in this, we know the whole time that um, the character Phil, um, he's in an estranged relationship with his then wife, you know, and it's all very evident that it's not going good. So you, you get a sense that it's not going to last. But um, that wasn't the final point, you know, of, of I didn't want to make it this kind of big conclusive thing. Like it's just, and, and, and just give it up, you know, like just, mm. the, just so you can get on with other stuff. Like you don't have to worry about those points. You can start wandering down things that are of more interest. And I, sorry, you go. No. Well, I, and some of the things that are of more interest, I mean, one of the points, because there, there are issues and ideas then that come out during mm. this, one that uh, struck me uh, and resonated with me. As a teacher, I had to teach my students the content of the state government syllabus, and in doing so, I did not in any way help their curiosity because I had to teach the contents of the state government syllabus, a deformed thing that devalued the one-off self-directed realisations that a student might naturally become conscious of through their own curiosity. But because the state government syllabus was created by teachers, it had no chance of being anything more than an approved state government syllabus. And because of the approved state government syllabus, I instructed my students to not be curious. Yeah. Well, well, it's true, though. Like, I was... <laughs> well, my background is a teacher. Well, yeah. I'm a, I was a teacher for 10 years. It's real. I was mm. a teacher. And my students did very well. But because of the state government, so you have a structure. So basically, you're undermining the idea of a natural curiosity, which is something that like Rabindranath Tagore sort of protested against in his own school. Like, so a student might say, oh, let's do this. Go, we can't do that today because today we have to get through this. We've got to... You know, this is at a senior level. You have to meet these certain points. It's all prescribed, yeah. So, you know, you'd have someone... You'd go down a... Like, a student might really get into something like... Like, I don't know, it could be Hamlet, you know. So you start wandering off. Well, you know, you're just <laughs> yes. teaching senior scholars to teach English and art. So you might start talking about Hamlet, and a student might want to start talking about, well, I don't know, do Rosencrantz and Guildenstern truly deserve to die? And you think, well, this isn't going to come up in the exam. But allowing the students to follow that curiosity could give them a much greater wealth of knowledge. But you don't, you, you can't. You, you end up seeing being pulled back to something you don't really feel is important. But it gets to the student because they've got a question yeah, to ask. Well, the, the natural curiosity of the student, which is in some ways what this uh, little piece is about, that natural curiosity, because to allow the mind to wander allows that curiosity um, to be fulfilled or explored. Yeah, a, a, a friend of mine, he... Um, he asked after he read it, he said, well, how, how did you structure this? How did you come up with the structure? And I said, the real thing that was of interest to me was a sense of, um, I think ultimately the books, in many ways, like Alice, because this is very much about echoing ideas in Alice, mm. or both books of Alice, um, and or third book, including through you know Alice's Adventures Underground, the original text. Um, but he asked, how did you structure this? And I it sort of sits on the idea of authority, which is what Alice enters this world, like everyone's telling her, you know, you know curtsy you know stand up straight say something in french and all these sort of things that she's told to do so all of a sudden she enters what is like a what i assume carol's giving is a sort of satirical world of what it means to grow up you're surrounded by a whole bunch of rules that don't really make a lot of sense like later on with you know humpty dumpty starts sort of pontificating telling her what to do and i think you know like that in this mr 
S is sort of doing the same. So when I mention something like, you know, if there is a perfect book, Alice is it, rather than being interested in what I might have to say, whether it be right or wrong, he's going to start pigeonholing, well, where does it belong on a shelf? Isn't it a children's book? You know, what, you know and I think these structures... I mean, we get hung up on words. Children do, you know, and, and, and Carol's very much about that, not getting hung up on words, you know, like the, the mock turtle, you know, their teacher, you know, he was the tortoise because he taught tortoise. us and all that sort of stuff. And it sort of plays with words. But I think that we don't, like I've got a child now and, you know, when she's looking at a book and there's a picture, my wife will read it to her and call one thing like a, like whatever she's, like the child, my daughter Olivia will be saying, you know, what's this, what's that? And my wife will tell her, then I'll read the book the next day and she'll lose it because I might not know the word because it happened to me the other day, like my wife was calling what I was calling coral and seaweed. She goes, no, no, my daughter's, and I had to ring her up and she said, it's, you know, sea anemone and that calmed her down. And, and we like that as adults. If someone calls you an idiot, you wander around in life going, am I an idiot? Once I was told, and you might start to believe it. You know what I mean? <laughs> do you, I, I don't know if you agree, but, but we do get hung up on structures and words. You know, people correcting spelling and grammar and all this. But at the same time, you have provided a structure. You've resolved this story. I mean, the ending, in many ways, is through association of sound and, and the like. I mean, there is a cat, Hobbes, uh, more could be said of that, but we haven't got time. But um, Hobbes, the orphan in his box, like Moses, Moses, Mr. Toes, as Moses supposes his toes are roses. Um, so there's a, a riff on the sound, but also it links back to a point in time where you've talked about myxomatosis with rabbits. So in some ways, that sound has unified or brought that thread uh, back into place, if you like, or tied it off. Yeah, through the book, there are there are clear connections. Like there are there are threads that run through rabbits as one, of mm. course, because of the white rabbit and um, the idea of changing chairs as the dinner party. Like you know, the Mad Hatter's tea party, moving from chair to chair. Um, We're also drinking out of teacups. Yeah, teacups tea because cups. the you know, Mr. and Mrs. S are moving the <laughs> moving graft, house, and so the moving yeah. house are drinking yeah. out of teacups. Um, you know, the the, the 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 sort of idea of like they're eating oysters. And and the and the ruling of there where Mr S puts pepper on you know which echoes mm. like pig and pepper but there's things like that that happen but they 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 resonate well they match up at other points I'm aware that I mentioned one thing so I mention again so when there's there's a part where I talk about climbing a tree now I can't exaggerate the idea in my own life like Alice of growing tall but as a kid I used to climb really tall trees it used to terrify my dad but um, I loved being up that high you know and um, so in a way it's kind of you know the opportunity for Alice is not so much a children's book. It is when you're an adult. That's, the real reason I think it's a perfect book is that as a child you read it and as you read it as an adult, you read it still as a work, but it, it, remember, it reminds you what it means to be a child again. But it doesn't, it's not a kid's book. You're reading it with an adult mind, you know, but it reminds mm. you. So when I was writing this, you know, I was remembering a lot of things in my child and such things like climbing a tree, which I'll never do again. Nothing like that. You know, I just won't. But, but that sort of sense of what it was for me then, who I was then, that person's gone, who I, you know, you know what yeah. I mean? Like it, it's, it's, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to, re well, trying to resolve, trying to bring it to a conclusion, which I shouldn't uh, in many ways, that there are elements here that are structuring this piece and bringing it together. But at the same time, we're almost arguing against structure to allow for that natural uh, diversions that we go on and rabbit holes we go down. So it's it's sort of structured on the one hand but not on the other <laughs> yeah i mean it's, i mean for me there's writers like say like walt whitman or mm. joyce you know i mean mm. i'm not saying they don't have structures but they certainly let it all hang out so you know you'll see you move from chapter to chapter he plays word games and things move and we, we and we follow one protagonist to another it jumps around like we don't follow one person all the way through and i've always liked that i like that in writers like montaigne and i just think that it offers 
a lot to the writer. I don't know if it offers much to the reader. I mean, it's that's. For, I mean, obviously it does. There's people who are very well, successful who, you know, like we just the names I just mentioned. But but well, things resonate. Uh, think your experiences, like with education, resonated with me because I've got my experience in that arena, so I can identify with what you're talking about. There were um, there was another thing, um, the Dewey Decimal System. That's no. like it's a bit uh, uh, well. Jan, you'd identify with that as a librarian oh, uh, sort of thing, but it, it doesn't necessarily that. resonate as well with me, but that's that's a controlling structure and yeah. pigeonholing yeah. of things. Um, how much of this then is your own life story? I mean, you've got things like uh, being um, a young man with the senior constable. Uh, no, that was true. That was yeah, true. I was offered a cadetship as a graphic designer at the police academy. The mental hospital was true. That was in Golden. We used to go out there and play like cricket practice. Um, you wouldn't be allowed to do no, those not things now, today. Yeah, climb the trees, true. Um, the whole thing with Mr. S moving the Grafton's true. My my uncles, all their nicknames is true. That's mm. all true. Um, my dad was a cobbler by trade. That's true. Um, I'm trying to remember what else was in there now. My my my, my ex wife. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the cat is a conglomerate, right? Of a whole bunch of cats that I merged together to tell the story of Hobbs. But Hobbs the cat was real. But, um, mm. but I sort of squeezed a few cats together <laughs> to make sense. And, of it. and you've got. So well, a sequel or further? Yeah, the next bit. It's val. It's working titles value nothing, which will be two much larger chapters. Like mm. it'll be because this is really a chapter of what is to come. But it's complete. Yeah. It's, it's complete by, in itself. Yeah, yeah. And the next one could be read by itself, but it make more sense. So the next one's called Value Nothing, and the working title for the third one is um. Its only work title was um Quicksilver, which it won't remain Quicksilver. That was just um. But it's much longer. It's sort of set in New York, London, then Varanasi in India. And then it has a much more larger bit on the end about Rabindranath Tagore. <laughs> well, it's a it's a rabbit hole to, to go down, to explore and discover. The book is A Chink in a Daisy Chain. And uh, Finlay Lloyd are the publishers who have brought out these, what they call smalls. Which, this isn't one of them. <laughs> which isn't one of them, but sort of is yeah. still <laughs> part of it. But, yeah, the author is Phil Day. And that brings us to an end. For this week, Jen. I'm amazed that there's so much story and so little book. Yes. Well, that's what I like about those structures. Like, it's like, like I said, like a favourite book of mine is Jonah. You know, in the, like it's a great story and it's it's a page, but it, a lot happens. Indeed, it does, <laughs> and the significance of it all as well. Well, thanks, David. Thank you, Phil, and thanks thank you, Rob. Thanks, Jen. Listen in next week. <laughs>